Father, we are so thankful for your strength. We're thankful for your spirit who gives it to us. We just ask now this morning, as we pause, as we open your word, that you would speak to us, that we would hear your voice. Please take away everything that is not you so that we would know exactly what it is that you are asking of us. We thank you for the truth of Scripture that is made available to us and thankful for these times when we can gather to hear it read and taught. So please, Father, as we lay ourselves before you this morning, we ask that you would shape us and change us into the people that you are calling us to be by your word. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can sit down. Well, I can tell everybody's excited. We made it. This is week 39 of the whole story. You know what that means. Nobody knows what that means. Let me tell you what that means. It means that we've made it to the end of the Old Testament. We're in Malachi today, the last book in the Old Testament. That is an accomplishment. We started last May, almost exactly a year ago, 50 weeks ago, we started in May, and Pastor Tim started us off in the book of Genesis, and here we are all the way to the end of the Old Testament. So thank you for hanging with us through this, and we hope that you've maybe read some passages that you've never read before. I know some of our small groups are going through some of the same books that we are, and some of you are reading along and following with us, and so we hope you've learned some things that you didn't know before. We hope that you've seen more about the character of Christ as we've taught through these books, and also maybe seen Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Whenever we think about Christ, we always think about the New Testament, but we've seen Christ all through the Old Testament as well. And most of all, our primary goal in doing this series with you over this past year has been to show you that the whole Bible is one story. Even though it's 66 books, even though it was written by 40 different people over 1,500 years, it's one story. And the story is this, that God has chosen to glorify himself and display his grace by redeeming people. Now, we know, and now you know, because you've been through this with us, that the majority of the Old Testament is about the nation of Israel. And we've seen God's grace to Israel time and time again, his patience and his love to them. But we've also seen that it applies to us as well. And we are thankful for God's grace in our lives in displaying it by redeeming us. Another thing that we've learned by going through the Old Testament is that it is not in chronological order. How many people learned that for the first time this past year, that it's not... Everybody knew that the Bible was not in chronological order. Okay, well, very good. I'm sorry for selling you short. You're far wiser than I, than I anticipated, and I, I apologize for that. The Bible isn't in chronological order. Now, Genesis is the first book. It talks about the creation of the world and human civilization, so it's in an appropriate place. But what we see in the Old Testament is that it's grouped by category. We have, we have history. We have the law. We have poetry, we have prophecy. And so all of these books are, are all out of order instead by category. But Malachi, the book we're going to look at this morning, the last book in the Old Testament, is in its proper place. He was the last prophet to Israel before Christ's birth. 
And after Malachi, after we read this and look at this, we need to put in our minds that God did not speak to Israel for 400 years. So we have all of this time of the nation of Israel, and we have prophets. We have patriarchs in the early books, and then we have prophets and kings walking through with Israel, and God is speaking to them, and they in turn are speaking to the people. But after Malachi, God stops for 400 years. He is silent. He doesn't say anything. As we look at this book, we need to realize that a hundred years has passed since Cyrus had told the Jews who were in captivity that they could go back. They could rebuild the temple. They could rebuild the walls. They could rebuild their city and live there. It's been a hundred years. We read about that in the book of Ezra. I think that was Tim that talked to us about Ezra as well. It's been a hundred years since that happened. It's been 80 years since Haggai encouraged the people. Two weeks ago, Tim was teaching to us from Haggai. And what did Haggai say? He said, keep going, keep working. They were doing it. They'd been 20 years, and Haggai was encouraging them not to give up. Now, another 10 years passed, and then Zechariah prophesied that Christ would return to the throne. If you remember, that's what we talked about last week. The return of the king, that God is going to gather all of the nations to this one place and he's going to defeat them and he, he's going to return to the throne. And Israel's enemies are going to be wiped out. It's been 70 years since Zechariah told them that. Now guess what has happened in those ensuing 70 years? Nothing. Nothing has happened. And no defeat of their enemies. No worldwide kingdom of God. And the nation of Israel is still vulnerable. They're insignificant. And they're beginning to wander away from God again. If we've learned anything, I know I'm talking a lot about what you've learned. I'm just hoping that some of these things are true. But one of the things we have learned, surely you have noticed with Israel, is God draws them back, he gives them everything that they need, and they walk with him for a little while, and then they wander off again, and then he draws them back, and then they wander off again, and he warns them there's going to be judgment, and then there is judgment, and they're off into captivity, and then he sends them back, and he gives them everything they need, and now look what's happening. They're wandering away again. It's been 70 years. Where is the king? How come we're still vulnerable? How come we still have to worry about these other tribes defeating us? We don't even have a king. And they began to wander. And they started cheating on their spouses. Interestingly, if you read the whole book of Malachi, you'll find that the family was starting to disintegrate. By the way, if you study the history of human civilization, you will see that one of the first indications that a civilization is beginning to crumble is the disintegration of the family. That's why I'm concerned about our country right now, because the family is falling apart. And that was happening with Israel. They were unfaithful to their spouses. They were marrying pagan wives. Now, this wasn't about racism. It was about faith. God had commanded them, don't marry these women from these countries. 
Why? Was there anything wrong with those countries? Well, there was one thing wrong. They didn't worship God. Even the priests were unfaithful. And they were breaking their covenant with God to serve him and guide the people into service and worship. Now, one of the laws that Israel was consistently ignoring or breaking was God's command to tithe. The Jewish law called for the Israelites to give a tenth of everything that they made to God. The problem was not just the amount that they were giving, it was what they were giving. Now you know that the Old Testament sacrificial system that God had given the Israelites, what were they sacrificing? Lambs, goats, calves, bulls, sometimes it was birds if they didn't have the resources to offer these other things. And God said, I want a tenth of what you have. I want you to give it to me as an offering. They were doing that somewhat, but you know what they were doing? On the day when it was time to go out into the sheep pen and get the lamb to take for the offering, they were going out and standing and watching the flock for a little while. You know what they were doing? They were saying, hey, Fred, Look at that one over there. He's a little gimpy. I think he broke his leg. Let's take that one. Or they'd go up back and they'd say, oh, remember that little calf? Got an infection in his eye when he was born and he's blind. Let's offer that one. Look at that one. It's about to drop dead. Quick, take it to the priest. That's what they were doing. They were offering their animals who were sick and lame and blind and dying because they didn't want to give God their best. And the priests were encouraging it. They were allowing it. They were not correcting the people. And Israel was mocking God with their half-hearted worship and their disdain for his laws. That's the tone of the book of Malachi. That's what's happening when we come to the passage that we're going to read this morning. And there's a lot for us to digest here, but this is what I want you to see. I want you to see that when we worship God, it is the condition of our hearts that matters, not just our actions. I want you to understand that it's our motivation, not just what we do that indicates where we are before God. Now, in the passage that we're going to read this morning, Malachi uses giving for the nation of Israel as an indicator of their heart's condition. And we're going to do the same as we read here in Malachi 3. And I want you to understand as we do that, that giving is a matter of trust. We tend to think of it as an obligation. Well, you know, who's ever been to a church where they didn't pause, shut the whole works down right in the middle and pass a plate around and make you put stuff in it, right? Or build a special box and put it right where you drive in <laughs> in hopes that you will see it. And that's how we look at giving often. It's, it's an ob obligation, and what we realize is that it's possible to give, but to do it grudgingly. Why would we give grudgingly? Well, because we've worked hard for what we have. We get up in the morning, and we get ourselves ready, and we go out to a job, and we work hard. And we come home, and we want to enjoy what we've earned. 
I want us to see this morning what God has to say about our giving and the condition of our hearts here from Malachi chapter 3. Let me just, let me just read a couple of verses for you to start. Malachi 3 verse 6 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? There was a disruption in the relationship between God and his people. That's what we just said, right? They were wandering away. There was a disruption. But I want you to notice from these verses that the problem was that they had turned aside. They had turned aside from God. What does God say? He says, I do not change. If you mark in your Bibles, underline that. Circle it. Make a note. I do not change. Whenever there is a disruption in your relationship with God, in my relationship with God, it's because I have changed. It's because I have walked away. Not because God has failed to keep his end of the bargain. God doesn't forsake his people. And God did not forget his covenant with Israel. In fact, I don't know if you noticed it as I was reading it, but the fact that God did not forsake his covenant with Israel was evidenced by the fact that they were still alive. Did you see that? I, the Lord, do not change. And that is why, by the way, you are not consumed. Israel was complaining. We're weak. We're vulnerable. We have no king. Please come back. Deliver us. Give us wealth. Give us prosperity. Give us protection. Give us peace. God said, I'm caring for you. If I wasn't caring for you, you'd be gone. You'd be a grease spot on the earth. By the way, that's the same with us. Do you know that if it were not for the mercy of God, we would be consumed? I know. We like to talk about God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's patience, and we do. But my friends, if it was not for his mercy, if it was not for him not giving us what we deserve, we would be consumed. We would be wiped off the face of the earth. But God does not forsake his people. What does he say in John 10, 28? He says, I know my sheep. And I hold them in the palm of my hand and no one is able to pluck them out. What does God tell them to do? He says, return to me. We just talked about this a couple of times over the last few weeks. Tim talked about it some, and I talked about it a couple of weeks later. Repentance, this is the word here. Return to me, repent, turn around. And God offered Israel, and he offers us another chance because of his mercy and grace and patience. Come back to my ways. Come back to obedience to me. How does Israel respond, if you have your Bible there, how does Israel respond to God's gracious invitation? Do you see what they say? How shall we return? Now, I don't know if you ever read the Bible like this. I do. 
You know what I, what, does anybody remember 20 years ago when we all started to text? Some of you weren't alive 20 years ago. There was a time when we didn't text. And then there was a few years where we texted like tap, 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 one letter. Tap, 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 one letter. Tap, 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 you know. I didn't text a whole lot in those days. But that was the way we used to do it. But that wasn't the worst part. You know what the worst part was? No emojis. Because when there's no emojis, I got to tell you, all you people who text me, you know, I don't send a text without an emoji. And all you who text me without emojis, it all just sounds mean. <laughs> Especially if you hit the caps lock, then I wonder why you're hollering at me. Do you ever read the Bible that way? It's hard to get a feel for it because it's black and white, two-dimensional, on a page. If there was a little emoji here, it would be a mouthy emoji, a sarcastic emoji, a snide emoji. Come back to me, God says. I'm going to express my mercy and my grace and my patience. And what does Israel say? What? What did we do? What did we do? We're going to the priest. We're making the offerings. That's what they're saying. You need to feel that. You need to read it. If you read the book of Malachi, they do this like six times. How shall we return, God? Okay. And by the way, we do this all the time. We do it all the time. If I only knew what God wanted from me. I mean, I love God. I want to be obedient. But it's all so confusing. What does God even want from me? Now listen, I know there are times when there are specific things and we don't know what decision to make. But please, if you have ever opened your Bible and read, you know what God wants from you. He wants you. That's why we sang these songs today. Christ is enough. All I want and all I need is found in you. He tells us that clearly. So when we say, I wish I knew what God wanted from me, we're just like Israel. We deflect God. And we delay obedience. And I don't know, folks, I think sometimes we indirectly blame God. If you were clearer about what you wanted, then I would do it. But since it's all so murky, we do that. What are we doing? We're blaming God. It's your fault, God. It's your fault I'm not obedient. It's your fault I don't, I don't do more. It's your fault I don't do what I'm supposed to all the time. If I only knew, then, then I'd get it right. Notice what he says next. I'm going to try to get my notes here. I'm trying to keep them from blowing away. This is where Malachi gives them an example of their obedience or their disobedience by talking about giving in verse 8. Will you rob God? This is God speaking. Will you rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. 
this is one of the other times when they do the snide, mouthy thing. How have we robbed you? When you offered the blind lamb, when you brought the calf that was about to keel over and die, and you brought it fast so the priest would kill it before it died, by not giving me what I asked of you, by giving me what you don't want. This is what Israel was saying. All right, God, how are we robbing you by not giving you what we own? Answer that. We own it. So if we don't give it to you, how's that robbing you? Well, Israel failed to understand something that many of us fail to understand as well, and that is that God owns everything. He owns everything. In Colossians 1.16, Paul says, For by him, or Christ, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. God is the creator, therefore he is the owner. Every good thing we have because he's given to us. That's what James says in James 1. God is the owner of all that we have and he makes us the managers of it. And as such, he has the right to direct us how we use it. He has the right to command us to give. And this is where Israel went wrong, as we often do. We forget that if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't have anything. Now, as New Testament Christ followers, we are not commanded to give 10%. There is no place in the New Testament instructed to the church where we are supposed to give 10%. That was for Israel. However, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul gives a discourse on giving, and he says we ought to give generously, willingly, gratefully, proportionally. That's a whole message for another time, but we are commanded to give. But this is what God tells Israel, and this is what I want us to catch as we draw some practical truth written from or from something that was written 2,500 years ago. When we do not give, we're saying that we don't trust God to supply our needs. That's what we're saying. We don't trust God to supply our needs. Well, I would give, but I'm worried about this. It's a matter of trust. Listen to what Malachi says in verse 10 of chapter 3. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, God caught on to their wiseness because you notice he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Because they said, hey, we're tithing. So he goes, all right, listen, bring the full tithe. <laughs> bring the full tithe. Israel was holding back 
They weren't doing what they should be doing. What, notice what he says there, so that there may be food in my house. You see, God had designed a system for Israel. He blessed them, and he asked them to give 10% back. Why did he do that? Well, he asked them to do it as an act of worship. But he asked them to do that as well so that the priests who served the people could be cared for. And he also did it, asked it, because those gifts cared for the poor as well. If you read the law, if you read Levitic Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the whole law was set up to care for the poor as well. And it also facilitated the celebration of God's goodness by the people. Bring the tithes into the storehouse so there may be food, so the priests may be cared for, so the poor may be cared for, and so that we can gather and worship together. Notice God says, put me to the test. Examine me, he's saying. Try me, test me. Why is God saying that? He is reemphasizing, he is reinforcing to them, when you don't give, you're showing that you don't trust me. You don't think I can do it. Or you don't think I want to do it. Sometimes that's our problem as well. It's not that we don't think God can do it. We think, oh yeah, well, God can do whatever he wants. He's God, but I don't think he wants to. God's got something out for me. He doesn't want to bless me or take care of me. But notice how God describes what he will do there in verse 10. See if I will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. The picture here is of a sluice. If you've ever seen a sluice, water pours down through this channel and washes everything out. And that's what God is talking about here. Test me, try me, and if you do, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pour out my blessing. What's God saying? He's saying, if you will hold nothing back from me, I will hold nothing back from you. Notice he says, until there is no more need. What a place to be. How would you like to sit down with your family or sit down with those that are closest to you and say, there's no need. I have everything I need. I'm cared for. This is what God says he will do. That's what he is promising Israel. Folks, God has blessed us with so much. The poorest of us is wealthier than 90% of the world. I don't know if you ever read those statistics or not. But there is a huge component of the world that still subsists on like a dollar a day. Millions and millions and millions of people. And God has blessed us and he has provided for us. What are we about? 70 weeks into this thing, whatever this thing is. Guess what? Had church every week. We have so much. Look at this place that we have. I don't know if you've drifted over to the end of the building lately, but there's about 400 loads of gravel that have been 
spread out and compacted and ready to go. Guess what? Material donated, trucks donated, guys volunteering to drive them. We have so much. I'm not talking about this because giving is down. <laughs> Actually, over the last year and three months, it's up. Higher than it's ever been. By the way, I've told this to many people, and I'm sure Tim has too, but maybe you haven't heard it. Tim and I don't know who gives what. We have no desire to know that. That's not what this is about. That's between you and God. The reason for discussing these things this morning is the simple question. Where is your heart? Where is your heart? For Israel, their giving was an indication that their heart was far from God, despite what it looked like. Here's what we need to remember. When you trust God fully, when you hold everything that he has given you with an open hand, when you are willing to say, it's all yours, God, there is no limit to the blessing that he can pour out on you. This is not a health and wealth message. This is not, hey, put a few bucks in the box and God will give you all of your wildest dreams. That's not what this is. This is saying that when we do this as individuals, when we show that our hearts are for him and are set on him and focused on him, that God cares for us. And when we do that as a church, God will care for us. By giving willingly, we're showing that we trust him. That's what Christ was talking about in Matthew 6.33 when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You will be cared for. God can do it and he is doing it as we continue to trust him. We're celebrating communion together this morning. And I think it meshes very well with what we're talking about because, by the way, our spiritual poverty is our greatest need. Isn't it interesting how much we complain about what we don't have financially when we fail to look into the depths of our heart and see our spiritual need? But God tells us that is our greatest need. And interestingly, in that discourse that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, right in the middle of it, when he talks about giving, he says this, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You want to be rich? The real wealth is in knowing Christ. The real wealth is in trusting him. And it's only by trusting him that our greatest need is met. We must trust him for salvation. We must trust him for every day, spiritually, physically, financially, in every way. We want to give thanks for that this morning.
We're going to do that by celebrating communion together. I hope you were able to get one of the little cups when you drove in. There's a box at the back if you didn't get one. And if you need one, Dean's at the back with a, with a bowl there with a few if you didn't get one and need one. We're going to celebrate communion today. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And, and after I pray, I would encourage you as the band plays a song for us to quiet your heart before God. Ask for His forgiveness. I hope that you do that daily. Reacclimate yourself to His grace and mercy and thank Him for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When you're ready, you can go ahead and eat the bread and then you can drink the cup, which is a symbol of His blood that was shed for us. We must set our hearts on Him we must allow His Word and its truth and all that Christ is for us. Quiet the voices of doubt and fear that are in our hearts. My friends, do you trust Him? That's what He is asking us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for the little book of Malachi. We thank You for the challenge, Lord. Forgive us for the times when when we seem to be going through the motions, but our hearts are far from you. By the way that we live, by the way that we talk, by the way that we give, I pray that we would indicate our trust in you. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And we pray this morning as we celebrate communion together, as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we do it thankfully and remembering that sacrifice father we do not take it lightly we thank you for jesus christ and his sacrifice which cleanses our hearts from sin father help us to set our hearts on you this morning in christ's name amen does he have every part of you That's what Malachi was challenging them with 2,500 years ago, and I think it rings true for us today. There are so many distractions, so many things that can take our attention. Are you focused on Christ? Are you holding anything back? just want to read a couple of verses as we close this morning. These are some of the last words that God spoke to Israel before he went silent. Malachi 3.16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him. Those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Listen to this verse. Verse 18. Then once more... You shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Folks, we have what the world needs, Christ. And if there's one thing that should be happening in this world as it spirals out of control or goes wherever it is that it's headed... When people look at us, they need to see the distinction. They need to see the difference between those who walk with God and those who do not. 
when we set our hearts on him, when we hold nothing back, I believe that will be evident. That's what God asks for us. Don't ever say, what do you want from me, God? This is what he wants. He wants nothing more and nothing less than everything. Your whole life. We do that as a church, that's powerful. When you do that where you work, that's powerful. Where you go to school, it matters. Let the world see the distinction. Let them see that we walk with God. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. It is evident that you are speaking to us through your word, and we just pray that in the coming moments, in the next few hours, even in the coming days this week, that you will cause these things to roll around in our hearts and minds, that we would be willing to ask ourselves these questions, that we would hold nothing back, but that everything that you have given to us, we would hold out to you with open hand and ask you to do as you will. Thank you for your grace and patience in our lives, and I pray that as we go out into this world that they will see that we walk with you for your glory and in Christ's strength and power. Amen. Thanks, folks. Hope you have a great week.